Please rise for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Seraphonician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Oh, but she answered him, sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Judy, for reading our lesson this morning, and uh, Brooke Ort for beautiful solo along with our youth ensemble. We're so grateful to you, all of our musicians, to Lauren Toy, and for those of you who are with us in worship today, it is indeed a great blessing to be with you. Uh, we are continuing today in the fifth week of this series that we're calling Powerful with another reading from the gospel according to St. Mark. Now let me bring you up to date on where we've been to this point. To this point, we have talked about the power of Jesus to forgive sin, to refocus a distracted mind, to calm a storm, to raise a deceased friend, Lazarus. And this morning in Mark chapter seven, Jesus heals a child with an unclean spirit. I think the truth of the matter is, in the text that we've just heard, there are actually two miracles that are taking place in this passage, one of which is explicit and the other is implicit, as we shall see. The scene begins with Jesus looking for an escape, I think. In fact, the text says that Jesus has now left Galilee, which is headquarters for his ministry, and he's headed northwest on the map to what's called the region of Tyre. Just above Tyre is Sidon, which actually is modern-day Lebanon. Beirut is the capital. It's located there, as you can see, on the shores, on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre was a place that was what we might call across the tracks. In other words, it was beyond Judea, it was beyond Galilee, it was just across the border in Gentile territory. And what we know is that Jews didn't go to Tyre. But Jesus went, seemingly, it seems, not to do ministry, not to engage in ministry, but actually to escape ministry. Or at least that's what the text implies. Jesus is in need of a break. Jesus is trying to get some fresh air. He needs some space 
not just from his admirers, but from his opponents. And believe you me, Jesus had his opponents. We know that because earlier in the same chapter, Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees were all over Jesus because of his apparent neglect of purity laws, which in some cases were actually more custom than compulsory, but they were all over Jesus. And so Jesus needed, frankly, a break. He needed a change of pace, a, a different climate, a change of scenery where there would be no demands, no deadlines, and maybe even no critics. Good luck with that. I think it was Stanley Hauerwas, who professor of ethics for many years at Duke University, at the seminary at Duke, who said, and I quote, most pastors are a quivering mass of availability. And that's a shame. It's not sustainable. The truth of the matter is there are times, even for clergy, but for all people, including caregivers, doctors, nurses, first responders, there are moments when we need not to be available. There are moments where we need to be inaccessible, where we need to disconnect in order to reconnect or to, to detach in order to reattach. And, and I've had to find this out the hard way over 38 years. It is no sin to occasionally say no. Not today. Not now. And apparently Jesus had those moments as well. We know that because of the recurring phrase that says, and Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place for a break. And so it is in this text, verse 24, and Jesus entered a house and did not want anybody to know that he was there. And yet, as you can imagine, his anonymity <laughs> is short-lived. The rumors spread, the news is all around. The rest of the verse says that Jesus could not escape notice. In other words, his presence can never be concealed. His demeanor cannot be hidden. There was a woman there was a woman with a need, a parental need. She had a little child, a little girl, who apparently suffered from an unclean spirit. In fact, the NIV translation says that the child was possessed by an evil spirit. And I want you to notice this mother's posture. The Scripture says she came and bowed down at Jesus' feet. That's an important word. What does that mean? That's the posture of, of reverence. That, that's the position of worship. That's a liturgical, liturgical expression of, of respect. And then Mark actually specifies this woman who is adoring Jesus, her ethnicity. That's interesting. She's a Greek, one translation says. She, she's a Gentile. In other words, she's not Jewish. And furthermore, she is of Syrophoenician origin. At this point, if you follow Matthew's parallel of this particular story, Matthew says that this woman had become a nuisance to Jesus because she kept begging and appealing and shouting, have mercy on me, Lord, for my daughter is tormented by an unclean spirit. In fact, if you look at Matthew's version, it's really interesting. Matthew says that the disciples encouraged Jesus, Jesus to get rid of this woman, to send her away. She's disturbing his break. She's disturbing the peace. 
And I don't have to tell you, hell hath no fury like a mother advocating for her children. (laughs) I've seen it at home in my home game version. I've seen it in my own wife. Now, I'm not asking you to do this, but you can talk bad about me in front of Sherry and she'll give you a break. She might even agree with you sometimes, but don't mess with Sherry Chapel's children. Even when they're 31, as our son is today. Don't mess. Hell hath no fury like a mother appealing for her kids. Now, here's the part of the story that's trouble for me. At this point, this part of the story gives me pause. Jesus' response to this woman, I don't know if you actually heard it, but it's, it sounds so unchristlike. Jesus says to this woman who's begging for her child, let the children, who's the children? The Jewish folks, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Now, I have to tell you, every time I've read that verse, I do a double take. I have to go back and make sure that that's actually what Jesus said. But Mark says that's what the man said. And for me, at least, especially by 21st century standards, (laughs) it sounds so offensive. It sounds so insensitive. In fact, it almost sounds like Jesus is profiling this woman. What's he doing? Well, I don't know if it'll help you, but it's helped me to do a little digging into the cultural context. The truth is there's some history here. There's some bad blood. The Greeks in the region of Tyre and Sidon, which was at one time Phoenicia, the Greeks in that area were not known to be overly friendly to the Jews down south in Galilee. In fact, historians tell us that at the time of Mark's writing, which was somewhere around 60, maybe 70 AD, they tell us that there was a famine in that area and that the Jewish peasant farmers in Upper Galilee were actually growing the food, the produce, the vegetables that was feeding those wealthy coastal citizens up north who at the same time those Syrophoenician people were harassing these Galilean farmers and treating them with contempt. So understand there's no doubt the hostility and anti-Semitism that's bubbling up just beneath the surface of this text. I'll tell you something else that's true. It was also true that it was customary for devout Jews to refer to Gentile pagans as dogs. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? It's a colloquialism for people who were indifferent to matters of faith and mercy and justice. And by the way, we still use that phrase sometimes. Well, you know, that church has gone to the dogs or or that place of business, that school, that group of people, they've gone to the dogs. What are we saying? It's an uncomplimentary way of saying they have lost their center. They've lost their moral compass. They've lost their purpose. They've lost their identity as being made in the image of God. It's interesting that Jesus actually uses the same kind of language in his Sermon on the Mount. This is unbelievable. Chapter 7, verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs. There it is. 
And don't throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under your feet and maul you. Whew. That's a little harsh coming from Jesus. It's so unchristlike. And notice, furthermore, that Jesus says these words right after he said, judge not, lest you be judged. So what's this name-calling business about? Jesus is in no way encouraging us to be hypercritical or judgmental, but he is cautioning us not to be naive. There were those in that day as there are in this day who will manipulate the sacred for our own power and benefit. And at this point, Jesus is not talking to Gentiles. He's talking to Jews who are behaving like dogs. We live in a dog-eat-dog world sometimes, don't we? And what Jesus is saying is, don't waste time or invite harassment from those who are openly hostile to the gospel. He's not saying, he's not giving you permission to be judgmental, but he's saying don't be naive. Now here's the other interesting thing, culturally speaking, that Jews typically thought of dogs uh, differently than Gentiles thought of dogs. Jews thought of dogs as, as wild animals, scavengers who constantly roamed the streets, digging, looking for food, and attacking weaker creatures. But for Gentiles, dogs were more often, as they are for us, house pets. In, in, in fact, for, for, for us today, our dogs, have you noticed, they're more like our children than they are our pets. In fact, we refer to them as man's best friend, we call them. I read an interesting quote the other day that said, when your children are teenagers, it's important to have a dog so that someone in the house is happy to see you. And I think that's true. So there's a different way of looking. We had our daughter's wedding a couple of weeks ago in the mountains of North Georgia. Uh, that's my daughter on the left. My son-in-law, who's six foot six, is on the right, a former pitcher, college baseball player. His name, his name is Zach. His last name is Hoopa, H-O-O-P-A-U-G-H. So now Haley Chapel has become Haley Hoopa. Sounds like a party to me. But it was one of the most joyful days of our lives. I have to tell you, it was one of the proudest days as being a parent uh, that I can ever remember. What I want to say to you is that one of our attendants, one of Haley's attendants in the wedding party I have a slide of was a chocolate lab named Bailey. I'm not kidding when I tell you that Bailey, even listed in the program, was the flower girl. That's Haley's dog. That's our grand dog. So you can say something bad about my children, but don't be talking about my grand dog, Bailey, flower girl. Here she's smooching with the ring bearer, as you can see. And I have to tell you, she was by far the best behaved creature at that wedding party. I can't say that for everybody, but Bailey is one of the best people I know. She's not a bad dancer either, but she's a part of the family. And whenever I'm near that dog, I think of what Mark Twain said, the more I get to know people, the better I like dogs. And sometimes that's true. 
And so it depends on how you look at this, Gentiles, Jews. But in this story, the term dog, you you can't get away from it. It's a little insulting. It's surprising. But the saving grace in Jesus' response is found in the first, in that word, first. Now listen. When Jesus says, let the children be fed first, he's not saying that salvation is limited to Jews alone. He's talking about the chronology of salvation. He's talking about the sequence of revelation. First to the children. To say say there's a first implies there's also a second. And so what I see in that line is the plan of God from the very beginning was not only to save a race, but every race. But it starts with Abraham. It starts with Israel. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul meant. When he wrote to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So listen carefully. To be first is not privilege, it's responsibility. God did not choose Israel only, he chose Israel initially. And that doesn't give them a monopoly on God. It gives them an accountability to God to be a light to every nation, to all nations. This is the real reason, by the way, that Jesus crossed that border. It wasn't to escape escape ministry. It was to extend ministry. We know this because after his death and resurrection, he would give the great commission in Matthew 28, go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations. In fact, the word in Greek for nations, you know what it is? Ethne, E-T-H-N-E, which translates ethnicity. It means people groups, all people groups, Jews, Greeks, Syrophoenicians, Tyrians, Sidonians, Galileans, Judeans, Palestinians, Samaritans, Russians, Mexicans, Canadians, Africans, Americans, all nations. So to say first is not to restrict. It's about responsibility with a mission. And the seeds of that mission started in a culture of hostility and tribalism with one rabbi who crossed the tracks, with one Galilean who stepped over the fence and made himself available to a needy Gentile mother with a sick girl at home. Now, I don't know about you, but I think there are two miracles in this story. One is implicit, one is explicit. The biggest miracle in this story, however, is not the long-distance exorcism healing of that girl. The bigger miracle 
is the healing of a racial divide between a Syrophoenician pagan and a Galilean rabbi that would eventually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lead to Jews and Greeks sitting at the same table, drinking from the same cup. And if God can do that, what can he do with us? Black and white, blue and red. What can he do with us? Lastly, I want you to hear the response again of that woman. I love her persistence. Sir, she says, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs of the children. Well, that's a good answer, isn't it? You know, what's interesting to me is that in every other theological discussion that Jesus engaged in, particularly with the Pharisees, he overwhelmed them with his response and won the argument, but not here. Jesus is willing to lose the argument in order to win the woman and her baby. (laughs) He gladly loses the debate to gain the person. And that is so Jesus. Whoever wants to save his life, you're going to lose it. But whoever will lose her life for my sake will save it. That is so Jesus. Sometimes you find more faith on the other side of the tracks than you do in the heartland. Sometimes you find more faith in a heretic than you do a scribe. This is embarrassing, but sometimes you find more faith in a centurion than you do a clergy person. Sometimes you find more faith in a pagan than you do a Pharisee. And when you do, I assure you, the grace of God is at work. There's going to be healing. There's going to be reconciliation. There's going to be restoration. There's going to be salvation. And the amazing thing to me is that God does not always wait for theology to catch up with witness. Last word. I did a funeral last Saturday. We've been remembering so many of our loved ones. We called out 59 names last week on All Saints. That's a funeral every week in the course of a year. I had the privilege of doing a funeral out in the columbarium last Saturday. There were 15 of us who gathered because of COVID. We kept it small. And the service was for a woman named Kaki Beckett. Bob gave me permission to share a little bit about her. She and Bob have been members here at BUMC for 36 years. They've been married for over 50. They met at a youth revival in Chattanooga, Tennessee as teenagers. The last few years of Kaki's life, she suffered from Alzheimer's. And Bob said to me, Pastor, I had to learn to enter into her world because she could no longer enter into mine. And so you know what Bob did? He started telling her stories about her life 
that she couldn't remember. Tales of her children, of her babies and how she held them and raised trips that they made together, experiences that they shared. He, he would take a calendar and show her dates during the year and tell of special days and anniversaries just to give occasionally a smile or a glimpse of her wonderful life. He entered her world because she couldn't come into his. There's a word for that. It's called incarnation. And that's exactly what God has done in Christ. These stories that we tell on Sundays, they're our stories. First for the Jew, then to the Greek, and then even to creatures like us. And I don't know about you, but when I reread them, when I hear these old stories again, I remember who I am. And we come back to ourselves. And when we do, you become the miracle. I'm the miracle. And you cannot conceal that. You cannot hide that. And thanks be to God, you can never escape that. But you can extend that. And when you do, it's powerful. May it be so in you, in me, in Jesus' name.